Leonard Goldberg first became interested in medicine as a teenager. After surviving a serious staph infection as a young child, he was contacted 10 years later by his doctor, who was treating another patient with a similar ailment. Leonard donated blood to the sick girl and watched her improve dramatically. When the girl's appreciative father asked Leonard what he wanted to do when he grew up, he said he just might practice medicine. But how did that turn into writing? Well, while in training as a fellow in hematology at UCLA in the early 1980s, Leonard met a patient with severe anemia whose body was producing antibodies directed against her own blood. They targeted the Rh factor, which is present in almost all red blood cells. Fortunately, a family was found in Boston whose blood contained no Rh factors. That family donated blood, and it helped the patient tremendously. The case inspired in Leonard the idea that someone could be born with no tissue antigens and could therefore be a universal tissue donor. That idea became the novel Transplant, which launched Leonard's writing career and went through multiple printings. Now, Leonard balances writing and medicine and has had great success combining the two. His books about forensic pathologist Joanna Blaylock have sold over a million copies. We'll talk to Leonard about balancing two demanding careers, taking a break from a much-loved character, and the importance of three-star reviews as Leonard Goldberg joins us on the Scripts and Scribes podcast right now. Welcome to the Scripts and Scribes podcast. I'm your host, Krista Bean, and today we're welcoming to the show medical thriller author Leonard Goldberg. Thank you for joining us today, Leonard. It's a pleasure to be here. So your newest book, you're the author of many books, but your newest book is called Patient One. Tell us a little bit about that. Patient One is about the President of the United States, who is Patient One, becoming terribly ill while attending a state dinner in Beverly Hills. And at this dinner is the uh, President of Russia and his wife, as well as the First Family, and numerous dignitaries, actors and actresses. And uh, midway through dinner, people become violently ill and have to be rushed to a nearby medical center where Chechen terrorists are waiting for them. So the President and some of these dignitaries are taken hostage by the Chechen terrorists and demands are made, and if they, these demands are not met, then the terrorists threaten to begin killing uh, the hostages. Wow, that sounds that's like worst-case scenario for every everyone involved. <laughs> well, you can just begin to imagine the chaos it would cause, not only in America but all over the world, to have the the most powerful man in the world suddenly in the hand of terrorists. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it would just. Well, it would do a number of things. It would obviously embolden terrorists the world over. Mm-hmm. It would cause the stock markets to crash. Um, it would throw the uh, diplomatic and um, congressional uh, legislatures, as well as the executive branches of government, into turmoil. It would have a drastic, terrible effect. Um, and in the novel, of course, they try to keep this quiet mm-hmm. um, and to prevent the um, public from knowing about it, and they do a pretty good job of it, but the story begins to leak out, obviously. Yeah, and that's that's interesting when you you don't think about, you know, you hear a news story or even in a movie or something, you have a situation like that, and you don't really, they don't really explore all the far-reaching aspects. You know, you think, you don't think of the president being taken hostage, and you think of, automatically think, oh, the stock market's going to crash, or oh, the, you know, all the different, um, 
far-reaching effects. And, and I think in a novel, you can really get into that a lot more. Well, I think that's what makes the novel um, interesting, namely that suddenly you realize that this isolated effect, it has these giant, well, I use the word ripple effect um, in a very uh, charitable fashion. It <laughs> produces these giant waves that affects everybody. I mean, everybody in the world is literally affected by the fact that the President of the United States is now a hostage. And now you're a physician, obviously, um, but what sort of research did you have to do for the political side of this story? From the political side, um, it was relatively easy because I knew somebody who had worked in the State Department. By the way, all of my sources refused to be acknowledged. They said, I'd be delighted to talk to you about it but please don't acknowledge that I helped, et cetera, et cetera, because some of the things which we talked about were kind of touchy. But uh-huh. the one person who helped me the most with the um, uh, diplomatic and uh, diplomatic side effects of it was a man who was in the State Department for some 20 years and was relatively high up in the diplomatic corps. He was um, also an attorney who was... Um, uh, very well knowledge in the Constitution, particularly things that involve the transfer of power, which is the 25th Amendment, which says that if the president becomes incapacitated, then the uh, job of the president uh, passes on to the vice president. Mm-hmm. So he was very, very helpful in, in leading me down the uh, straight and narrow. Uh, one of the things that, uh, that he told me, which I was totally unaware of, for example, was if the president is incapacitated mm-hmm. and if military action is required, then the vice president is not in control of that. The Secretary of Defense is. Oh, I didn't know that either. Yeah, the Secretary of Defense, if there's military action. For all other things, the uh, vice president would be in control. Also, for this transfer of power to occur, it... it it has to be, a document has to be signed by all the members of the cabinet and as well as some of the members of the National Security Council to vouch that the president is incapacitated and can no longer uh, perform the duties of president. Mm-hmm. So it's not a simple, oh, let's pass the, the power on. It really uh, requires a, a fair amount of um, rather complex maneuvering to get things in place. Because, again, you're transferring the power of the most, per- the most powerful person on earth to somebody else. Mm-hmm. Um, in the novel, by the way, the um, the vice president is a female, which is kind of interesting. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And and also, you're talking about tr- the transfer of power. I mean, it's in a, in a crisis situation on top of all that. Not if you, I'm picturing, you know, the LBJ on the plane with Jackie Kennedy next to oh, him. Yeah. That sort of... Horrible situation. <laughs> well, yeah, it's a nightmare because everything is turned into turmoil. Um, it's just suddenly the president is gone, literally gone. So the um, the National Security Council is called into the Situation Room at the White House, and this is where all the decisions will be made. But before you can transfer the power, for example, you have to have the Attorney General come in and explain what the constitutional basis is for transfer of power. Um, And those provisions have to be met, or you can't transfer the power. Mm. And 
while all this is occurring, you have to understand that the rest of the world doesn't know, but the rest of the world will soon know. And <laughs> how do you deal with that? Right. How do you deal with that? Yeah. Um, Again, something you don't think about initially is how it's going to. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And now, how did you come up with the idea for this story? I think it was um, probably a combination of features, but the um, the one feature which stuck in my mind, I was one night surfing. This was, oh, I guess four or five years ago, I was surfing the... Um, the television channels, as you do, you know, you don't <laughs> see with something you like, so you just keep moving around. <laughs> and I came to this movie called Die Hard, mm-hmm. which I had never seen before. And it was a pretty good movie in which um, some uh, foreign terrorists take over a um, high-rise building in Los Angeles, and they make demands on the federal government, etc., and if these demands aren't met, then they're going to start killing hostages. And Bruce Willis, who is the hero in the movie, is a cop who happens to escape and is in the attic, uh, the, the ceiling space. So he, who is a cop, armed, uh, raises havoc with these uh, terrorists. And uh, in the end of the story, of course, is he saves the terrorists and uh, kills off the, uh, saves the uh, hostages and kills the terrorists. And it came to mind, I wonder what would happen if a similar situation occurred in which you have the um, the President of the United States or some very high-ranking um, official taken hostage by terrorists. And it occurred in a medical setting, of course, because that's my background. Mm-hmm. And that the only person to escape was a physician who had had training in special forces before becoming a doctor. Mm-hmm. And he is in the ceiling space. How would <laughs> he? How would he function to um, to help save the hostages? And remember, these hostages are very sick now because they've literally been poisoned at this dinner. So right. he has to somehow medically save the sick hostages, yet in the same breath destroy or kill the terrorists. Wow, that's, and that seems like quite a job, because normally when you have hostages, they just sit there quietly until, you know, something bad happens to them. But yeah, if they're they're in, cro- you know, chronic, constant danger the entire time, and that's just right. and raises also, stakes. Yeah. On the uh, on the ward, one of the pers- people who did not escape is a nurse who has to look after all these sick people by herself. Oh, wow. She is an ex-trauma nurse, so she's very bright and very wise into how to handling sick people. But some of these people are just having terrible medical problems. So the way in the novel it works is that the doctor in the ceiling somehow passes down notes to the nurse to uh, help her along in helping save the lives of these terribly ill people. So now that's, and, and that's great too, because you've got the sort of the teamwork going on, you've got the man and the woman and you know, it seems like it's a story that would really, you know, reach a wide audience because it seems yeah. like everyone has somebody they can sort of connect with. Right. And now how much, um, I mean, you've written a number of, of medical thrillers. How how many of those stories or even smaller things within those stories um, are based on your own personal experiences as a doctor? Well, I'm often asked by um, 
by colleagues and nurses, doctors, etc. Am I in this novel? I think I recognize me. <laughs> right? And I always have the same answer. I always say, well, a part of you is in it. <laughs> and they always say, well, which part? And I always answer, well, you have to figure that out yourself. <laughs> um, I don't think that, um, that that what I write about it, it really deals very much with personal experience. Um, although in some instances it does because uh, obviously if I'm a physician and one of my specialties was blood diseases and in certain of the novels uh, blood diseases come to the fore, how I would deal with those patients, of course, is included in the novel. Mm-hmm. But as far as using um, my personal experiences with patients, um, I think that is not part of the novel. I think most of what is in my novels is pure imagination, mm-hmm. which makes it good for me right. <laughs> and, and better for the reader, by the way. And there's more flexibility that way. <laughs> exactly. And, um, well, I often tell people, when I was at UCLA, I was on the staff at UCLA for 14 years, and I published over 100 scientific manuscripts. Mm-hmm. And in scientific manuscripts, you have to be very, very precise what you say. Um, even when you have a conclusion, you can't say, this is the magic wand. You can't say that. What you have to say is, this these data strongly suggest that, or this study would indicate that. So you have to be um, precise, but you're limited in what you can say because you can't make an exaggerated claim from the data. Mm-hmm. Whereas in a novel, you have free hand. You can say whatever you want, as long as, <laughs> as, long as not outrageous, but you can... Um, you know, in a novel, you can say that, gee, this uh, this is a brand new antibiotic that destroys virtually every bacteria mm-hmm. known to man, and uh, suddenly everybody says, "Wow, that's important! Um, what a great antibiotic! We need that." Well, you can never do that in medicine because it doesn't exist. Oh. It doesn't exist, so you have to be very careful. But then you say, "Well, in a novel." If you do that, what's the big deal? Well, the big deal is you have this wonderful antibiotic that's going to cure all infections, but then the antibiotic starts having terrible side effects. Ah, gotcha. So it's, but the reality is in a novel you have, oh, I guess what's called poetic or literary license. You can say or do whatever you want as long as it's not outrageous, whereas in a scientific uh, article you have to be very, very precise and you have to watch your words, um, but I think that's what makes writing so, so, so intriguing and um, so pleasurable to some people, including me, is that you can use your imagination and uh, write about things that might be or should be, rather than things that are. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, exactly. And and have you found that after writing so many um, uh, scientific? Um, studies or you know scientific articles um have you found that the actual process of writing as you translated to um fiction do you you find that that scientific writing helped your fiction writing just in in the process and being able to put words on paper oh yeah um as a matter of fact i once um wrote a small blurb for a ucla uh newspaper um the, the medical school has a 
well, it's not really a newspaper. It's more like a bulletin that comes out quarterly. And they asked me to write a, a brief novel about why is it that doctors can write medical thrillers? I mean, how does that connection occur? Mm-hmm. And my response was that all you have to do is read the discharge summary of a patient from a hospital, mm-hmm. and you will see a, a novel right before your eyes. Oh. And they say, well, how do you mean? Tell me. And I said, well, let's say that um, to begin with, in the discharge summary, you have a patient who is the victim afflicted by some disease, which is the um, enemy. Mm-hmm. And then you have this set up in which you have a victim who's been terrorized, injured, or killed by this awful human being or disease, mm-hmm. and then comes the doctor who is going to try to save this patient, i.e. the um, hero of the novel, mm-hmm. and then the doctor has to do all the laboratory tests and x-rays to find out what's wrong, just as in a detective novel, for example, the detective has to gather all the clues Mm-hmm. begin to formulate what may have happened and who might be responsible. And then you have the doctor putting all this together and trying to chase down the cause of the illness, which is like the protagonist chasing down the evil enemy. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the novel, of course, like at the end of the discharge summary, here you have the doctor curing the patient and everybody's happy. And in the novel, you have the detective or the hero finally chasing down the villain and destroying or capturing the villain and the uh, victim is saved and everybody's happy. So, <laughs> so when you think about it, a discharge summary from a patient in the hospital is very reads very much like a mystery novel. That's really interesting and I never would have thought to to think about it in those in those terms. Yeah. Now do you has there ever been a time where you're in the middle of writing a novel but at the same time you need to write one of these these um, scientific articles and you're trying to go back and forth from like a artistic narrative standpoint, trying to be more creative in the novel and more scientific in the article and having to switch back and forth. Well, I did that all the time. My first first three or four novels in which I would um, write uh, the scientific papers, either doing the afternoon when I was in my office at UCLA or when I would get home at night. But then it, say 9.30 or 10 o'clock at night, I would switch off and begin to write my novels. And I would write for three or four hours until um, I fell asleep, of course. <laughs> um, but the reality is I did that. Uh, and I had no trouble, by the way, switching back and forth. Um, it was it, I found it very easy. But now that I am away from research and that I do mainly consulting work, uh, my writing is all uh, fiction, and I kind of like it that way. Mm. That's great. Now, I, I want to switch gears just a little bit and talk about, um, you have your, your series, the uh, Joanna Blaylock series, in which there are nine books. Is that, that's correct? Right. And then for Patient One, you've gone to a standalone novel. Talk, talk a little bit about why you chose to go standalone and if you uh, miss Joanna at all. Well, the brief answer is, why did I switch over? It's because I was writing the 10th Joanna Blaylock novel. This was three or four years ago. And 
I had written maybe 10 chapters, and this was the first draft. And I had put it aside because I had gone on vacation for a few weeks, and I came back and picked it up and read it. And it read like something I had written before. Ah. And I said, goodness gracious, this this is so familiar. Is there something here that I've written before? And I started looking up in my old Joanna Blaylock novels, and it was. I began writing something that was very similar to what I'd written before. Uh-huh. And with that in mind, I said, you know, you better change horses there for a little while because you don't want to be repetitious. Um, and with that in mind, I decided it was time to to create a new set of characters, which I'm glad I did. It was really invigorating, and uh, the novel has done very, very well. But as to whether I miss Joanna, all the time. <laughs> all the time. Um, she's very special. Um she really got my literary career in gear. Um, the novels, the Joanna Blaylock novels, so I'm told, sold over a million copies worldwide. Wow. Translated into um, over a dozen languages. So it's, um, I miss her, and as a matter of fact, I have in mind a new Joanna Blaylock novel ah. that is now sitting in my brain, ter- percolating, <laughs> as I write the sequel to um, Patient One. Oh, because great. Now, now, now the uh, the publishers would very much like me to do a sequel to Patient One, and I I have, um, oh, I say about five or six chapters done, and it's even scarier than Patient One, so it's going to be a good novel. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, I was yeah. going to ask if Joanna was going to come back at all. and, and... Yeah, um, I... She's never really left me, to be honest with you, but it's... Um, it, she's such an interesting character for... Those few people who have not read Joanna's Joanna Blaylock novels, she is a forensic pathologist who is, um, at least in the early novels, is in her early 30s, who is very, very attractive and very shapely. And, of course, because she is very, very attractive and female, people around her, particularly the police and, to a lesser extent, her colleagues at the medical center, don't take her as seriously as they might. Mm-hmm. Um, but suddenly they find out that um, this very attractive beauty, if you will, that's a facade. That beneath that very pretty face is an incredibly good brain, mm-hmm. which can solve mysteries the way Sherlock Holmes did. Um, and she turned out to be a very, very interesting character who um, who uses her brains more than. Uh, any physical skills to uh, to solve mysteries, and um, of course, as her partner and her part-time lover is a detective, Jake Sinclair, who um, uh, who she teams with, and he provides the muscle when needed. <laughs> um, it's um, she's very, very much in my mind, and as I say, I I am have a novel percolating in my brain right now on um, how to bring her back, and I will, I will. But I can't write two novels at the same time. I once tried that, and it's impossible for me to do. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's just I can't go from one character to the next. So what I'm doing is I'm going to finish this novel, and it will take me another seven, eight months or whatever to get a good first draft. And then three or four months after that, it'll be in fairly good shape, and then I can really get back to the Joanna Blaylock novels 
which, by the way, I am scribbling down some notes as they come to mind. Mm-hmm. So it won't be a blank page when I begin. But that's the long answer to your short question. <laughs> and the answer is Joanna Blaylock is still with me. And now you have obviously a very flourishing writing career, and you also have a medical career. And I think to most people, both of those sound like well enough to take up all of your time. How do you balance two careers like that? Well, something has to give a little bit. And what I have done, I used to have a relatively big practice in Santa Monica. When I left UCLA, after being there for 15 years, and decided to go into private practice, which I enjoyed very much. And I did that for like, oh, close to 10 years. And at the same time, I was writing novels. And it really got very hectic. I, I would get home at 7, 8 o'clock at night and quickly have something to eat, then begin writing. And next thing I knew, it was 2 or 3 in the morning. And I had to get up by 6 to go to the hospital. And it really became, um, uh, almost at times, virtually overwhelming. So... Fortunately, the novels took off very well, and I decided that it was time to cut back on medicine, which I did, and then I began doing mainly consulting in uh, in my specialties. And with that, I freed up much more time. So now I do mainly consulting. I do a fair amount of medical legal work mm-hmm. uh, because I'm, I have sub- I'm board certified in three different subspecialties. So that makes me uh, an attractive expert witness for certain cases. So I have cut back on medicine a bit so that I can do more with writing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm not going to give up medicine if that's the question you're, you're about to answer. <laughs> to ask, or that's not going to happen. Um, and then I, I always tell the story, which I think is just a great story. There have been a number of um, physician Ash writers, as you know, in history, probably the most famous of which is um, Arthur Conan Doyle, who was a physician, mm-hmm. an ophthalmologist, and of course a great writer. He invented the and created the Sherlock Holmes novels. But another physician writer who people probably know is, is Anton Chekhov. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and Chekhov was once asked by uh, doing an interview uh, said, look, you do so well with um, with your writing, and obviously uh, well known, et cetera, et cetera. Why do you even bother with medicine at this point in your life? And his response was, and that this is a, a paraphrase, but it's pretty pretty accurate. Uh, Chekhov said, "Medicine is my wife. Writing is my mistress." When I get tired of one, I turn to the other. (laughs) (laughs) I always thought it was a wonderful quote. And I I think what he was saying is that it's good to have two different lines of endeavor going on in your your life Mm -hmm. because it keeps you from getting into a rut. Yeah. And And if you get tired of one, go to the other. And especially two that are so different. I mean, I think most people would consider writing very... Um, right-brained, you know, creative, oh, yeah. artistic, yeah. and then medicine is very, you know, in a lot of ways, very cut and dry and obviously right. very scientific-based. And- Absolutely, and I think that um, that when you go to one, uh, either writing or the medicine, whichever, you give the other side of your brain a little bit of a rest. Oh, yeah. Right, and it kind of it, it reinvigorates. Yeah, re- recharge time. Absolutely. 
That's great. That's a great balance. Yeah. Now, what's a normal writing day like for you? Just an ordinary Wednesday? You don't have to do anything medical-wise? You can just get up and write? What, what's your schedule like on a day like that? My usual schedule is as follows. I get up about um, quarter to seven. Mm-hmm. I then walk about six blocks to a place where I can get a newspaper. And you say, well, why don't you um, have it delivered? And my response is, well, then I wouldn't walk seven blocks to get to the newspaper. <laughs> so I walk, I come back, I then have a, a slight breakfast, nothing big, read the paper, and then by 8 o'clock I'm writing. And I can write usually five hours, five to six hours before my hand gives out. And I write by hand, by the way. I use a pencil and um, a legal pad. Oh, really? Yeah, I don't like um, to write on a computer. It, it doesn't come out well for me. Oh. Um, it just doesn't. I don't know why. Um, as a f- friend and ri- fellow writer once told me that when uh, he uses a pencil, the bubble starts to, to bubble up, whereas on a computer that doesn't happen. But in any event, I write for about... Um, five to six hours until like one thirty or 2 in the afternoon. And then I will read what I wrote, not very carefully, just enough <laughs> to make sure that I can read what I wrote. And then I will put it aside. Um, the next day, I will then reread it and make corrections, additions, or what have you. <laughs> but I'm only good for about five or six hours, and that works out to about 10 pages of legal hand- handwritten legal pages. Mm. It takes me, oh, somewhere between seven and eight months to write a novel, and that's a first draft. Mm-hmm. Um, and as you probably know, every writer thinks his first draft is wonderful. <laughs> this is the final draft that whoever looks at it is going to say, this is absolutely the best thing I've ever read. It's ready to go to the publisher now. Um when in fact, first draft is really just that, a first draft, and it's about four drafts away from being worthy of sending to uh, to the publisher. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, I often, people often say, well, gee, what would you tell people about um, writing? What would you uh, say was the most important um, advice you can give? And I always say persevere, persevere, mm-hmm. hang in, because you're going to revise that novel whether you want to or not. And, of course, if you have a good agent, the agent will ask for revisions. And they're usually pretty good at this, by the way, because agents won't send a manuscript to a publisher until they think it's pretty good. That's oh, important yeah. because the publisher gets to know the agent and will say, gee, this is a um, manuscript that's sent to us by Joe Jones, and we know he only sends us the very best. So after the publisher, after the agent has gone over it and you've made those changes, then it goes to the publisher, and then it's going to go through at least two more revisions after that. But mm-hmm. that's all right, because it, you end up with a fairly good, solid novel and uh, something that people will read and enjoy. And I'd rather have to go through the pains of revision to end up with a good, finished product than to have false praise and put out some sort of novel which people look at and say, my God, doesn't this guy have an editor? Yeah, <laughs> those online reviewers are not going to have any false praise. They're going to tell you exactly oh, what uh, they think. Well, you know, it's funny there. I usually get very good reviews. Um, I just, uh, I've been very fortunate in that. Um, but there's one person, I don't know who it is, 
but uh, he's um, he's from Stockton, California. That's all. Oh. And online, he just he cannot find anything good to say about my novels. All <laughs> me, for example. I did write one novel, the last Joanna Blaylock novel, which was really a very, very good novel. It was called Fever Cell. Um, and he didn't didn't make a comment on that one. I think that was too good for him to comment. <laughs> but on the others, oh, I just, just uh, this is mm. cliche and... Uh, my goodness, this detective sounds like he's from the, like a Neanderthal, and <laughs> on and on and on. And, and, but you have to take the good with the bad. And um, I had a, um, a friend, but more an acquaintance than a friend, who was in our practice when I was in Santa Monica. He was really the patient of um, my colleague, and, but I knew him and I chatted with him at dinner parties and. Um, Cocktail, cocktail parties, what have you. His name was James Clavell, who wrote Shogun and a bunch oh. of other wonderful novels. And I was oh. once talking to him about reviews. And he told me that the best way to get an honest review is to take the very, very best review you ever received, mm-hmm. add it together with the very, very worst review you ever received, divide by two, oh. and you'll have a true... Um, review of your novel. That is somewhere in between the very, very best and the very, very worst. So what I'm saying is somebody gives you five stars and you say, oh, this is wonderful, then along comes somebody that gives you two stars. Mm-hmm. Well, your novel is probably a three and a half to four. And you just have to accept that. Yeah. And and I always try when I'm reading reviews online on Goodreads or Amazon, I'll, I'll usually skip the five stars and the one stars because they're, yeah. you know, people like, oh, there's, it's perfect book or it's you know the worst book ever written and you you know it's somewhere in the middle it's usually the, about the three three two three four star reviews that that i personally read absolutely. and take to absolutely. heart yeah. yeah absolutely the three to three and a half stars the ones that are the most honest they point out the good points but they also point out the um the flaws um and i i agree with that i think the three to three and a half stars are the ones you should really read mm-hmm. they're, they're the ones that are the most honest i believe yeah and it, and it shows a sort of a, a, a gray in between level of thinking that you know that they can recognize the good and the bad. Absolutely. In each and one. And also, you also know that these are people who really read books. Yeah. If they took the time to really sit down and analyze what was read and think about the story at the end, so that when they write something, it's it's bona fide, mm-hmm. it's not some uh, you know some. Well, I use the word twit, but maybe that's not <laughs> the best. But it's not some twit who reads and says, this is the greatest novel I've ever read in my life. <laughs> well, you know, my first quote, <laughs> you must have a very limited reading experience. <laughs> um, on the other hand, uh, I don't pay much attention to somebody who says, this is the worst thing I've ever read. This is terrible through and through. Because I know it's not, and mm-hmm. um, some people just take um, some joy in uh, writing unfortunate things about your work. And my agent once told me, and this is very interesting, by the way, my agent once once told me that the people who give the worst reviews mm-hmm. are almost always, almost always failed writers. Oh, bitter, angry. Yeah, really bitter. Um, and um, he said, it, you know, obviously he didn't have a list of people, he said, but on more than a few occasions he knows the reviewer. 
and these are people who have tried desperately to get published or who have published one novel, and uh, the end result was um, it was poorly received, and this person is embittered. And if they see something that really is a good novel, they go to some lengths to, um, to portray it as being not very good. And I thought that was kind of an interesting uh, observation. Whether it's true or not, I don't know, but we believe <laughs> it was true. So the reality is, is that you gotta be a little cautious with reviews, and I think mm-hmm. one of the great <laughs> Hemingway, and don't get me wrong, I'm not comparing myself to Hemingway, but Hemingway was at once asked about critics, mm-hmm. and he said, he said critics are like generals who view the battle from afar, on, on the mountaintop <laughs> from afar, and after the battle is over. They come down and shoot all the survivors. <laughs> oh my gosh! Uh, which I thought was uh, rather good. So, look, I take the good with the bad. It's how life is, and what you have to understand is your novel is really not as good as the five-star reviewer says it is, mm-hmm. and it's not nearly as bad as the one or two-star people say. So, understand that you're somewhere in the middle, like most of us are. Yeah, and I think that's a really good, healthy way to look at it. Yeah, yeah. So, well, we're almost out of time, but we have um, a little segment we do at the end of our podcast here called Rapid Fire, and it's um, a series of five either-or questions. And um, I'll just say, you know, it'll say black or white, and you just choose whichever one you prefer. Mm-hmm. Okay. okay, ready? Yeah. Um, Charleston or Los Angeles? Charleston. Um, writing a series or writing a standalone novel? Um, I like the uh, series. Okay. Better Doctor, House or Doogie Hauser? Doogie. <laughs> um, better Action Star, Bruce Willis or Sylvester Stallone? Oh, Bruce Willis. By far. <laughs> yeah. um, and the Harder Task, Treating a Patient or Editing a First Draft? Oh, Treating a Patient. <laughs> There's more at stake. Oh, true, true. Yeah, I mean, with with a patient, you may be dealing with life. Yeah. Editing a novel, you're dealing with ego. (laughs) And for most people, the first one is more, uh, a little more serious there. I would think. (laughs) Well, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today, Leonard. It's been a pleasure. It's always good. I enjoyed talking with you. Yes. I saw the clip you did on me, and it was very, very good, and I really appreciate you doing that. Leonard's newest book, Patient One, is on sale now, and you can visit his website at leonardgoldberg.com. And if you have any questions on the craft or business of writing, send us an email to ask at scriptsandscribes.com or send us a tweet to at scriptscribes. And there's no and in the middle there, just at scriptscribes. Thanks for listening. 